It's the evening of September 10th, 1983. The spree murderers and thieves, known throughout Belgium as the Brabant Killers, pull up outside the Wittok van Landegem textile factory in the town of Temps. It's a Saturday, so the usual hustle and bustle of staff shuttling in and out is replaced with the stillness of the night. The Brabant killers each pull ski masks down over their faces before exiting the vehicle and slide out of their seats, weapons drawn. They may be hiding their faces, but they are the most infamous trio in the country, known only by the nicknames the press have christened them with, the giant, the killer, and the old man. The factory itself is locked up tight, but that won't stop a determined crew like this. They come prepared, two of them whipping out blowtorches, going to work on a steel shutter door while the third scans the surrounding area. It's only a matter of minutes before they've cut a large enough chunk of the door away to slip inside. The Wittok factory is widely known for making top quality sales for boats. What isn't common knowledge is that recently, the owners have struck a deal with the Belgian police to manufacture a new prototype range of bulletproof vests. Information that should only be known to staff and police officers. That's what has brought the men here tonight. They make their way through corridors and onto the factory floor to look for the items they're here to steal. A glimmer of light makes them freeze over by the far wall. A flashlight beam plays over windows that lead into what looks like offices across the far side of the factory. A shape ambles along past opaque panes, and the three men ready their weapons, training them on whoever is about to walk out of the doorway. The startled face they see is that of Joseph Broder, the factory's janitor. He and his wife live in an apartment that joins onto the main building. Broder sees the men and runs back to his apartment, shutting the door. But one of the Brabant killers blasts through it with their pump-action shotgun. The pellets tear through, hitting Broder in the stomach. He manages to drag himself to the nearby bedroom, desperate to warn his wife. But the Brabant killers break down the front door and quickly catch up with him. Without showing a hint of mercy, one of them finishes him off with four shots to the head as his terrified wife watches. One of the masked men aims his gun towards her, squeezing off a single shot. She raises a hand in a futile attempt to protect her face. The bullet strikes her thumb, ricocheting downwards, ending up lodged in her lung. She'll survive, but will spend the next two months in a coma and not leave the hospital for a full year. In the silence that follows the shots, there's a creak behind them, and the Brabant killers spin to see the couple's three-year-old daughter standing in the doorway of her own bedroom. One of them scoops up the crying child and puts her back into bed without a word. They head straight back into the factory and continue rifling through boxes and cupboards until they find what they're looking for. Between them, they scoop up seven of the latest bulletproof vests and run back out the way they came. The earlier gunshots must have been loud enough to be heard by neighboring houses, and the gang sees faces peering out of lit up windows watching them. They don't hesitate in sending a volley of fire at random houses to discourage anyone from looking at them for too long. Thankfully, nobody is hit, and the gang make off with their haul before police can arrive. 
How had they known to target that location for the vests? Was it just a loose-lipped employee who had let slip what the factory was making? Or could it be that suspicions of them being police officers themselves are correct? It will be another 32 years before an officer in the Belgian gendarmerie called Christian Bonkowski allegedly confesses to being the leader of the group, the tall man known as the giant. But are his final words genuine? Or just the ramblings of a man who knows he doesn't have long left and whose mind has already started to slip? At the moment of death, People often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Christian Bonkowski, of the words he allegedly spoke as he lay dying, about a ruthless gang of criminals he claims to have been the leader of, who left 28 bodies in their wake a crime spree lasting three years that left the police baffled, and the dying words that might finally answer the longest-running question in Belgian law enforcement. Who were the Brabant killers? I'm Estefania Haigman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. With the raid on the textile factory, the Brabant killers have managed to upgrade their already impressive arsenal to include protection from police bullets. They'll wait only a week before striking again. Following the same pattern they followed for weeks, they hit a supermarket near a 24-hour service station. They pull up behind the building, one of the men whipping out a blowtorch. The other two keep watch while he cuts his way through the metal door that leads into the supermarket. While they're still working on gaining entry, a Mercedes pulls into a self-service gas station right next to the supermarket. Jacques Forez and Elise Duit are a middle-aged couple returning home from a trip to Paris. 
One of the Brabant killers spots the Mercedes, aims at Forez, who is pumping gas, and pulls the trigger. Nothing happens. It's jammed. Forez stands frozen as the man known as the killer ejects two misfiring casings from his gun. He takes two more steps towards Forez, and this time, the pistol fires, hitting Forez square in the face. The killer stands over the fallen man, finishing him off where he lies with two more shots to the head. Duet watches from inside the Mercedes, helpless to stop the execution. But her survival instinct kicks in, and she leaps out of the car, trying to escape. The killer squeezes off a quick shot, but it zings past her head. She seizes this lifeline and tries to run past him, but he reaches out a hand, grabbing a fistful of hair, yanking her back. She does what she can do to fight back, lashing out, but loses her glasses in the process. The killer drags her to where his fellow Brabant killers are at the rear of the supermarket. Before she can plead for her life, he pumps two rounds into her head at point-blank range. He jogs back to the couple's Mercedes, jumps in, and drives it over to the door they're trying to break through. They fire three more shots into both Ferez and DeWitt, despite them already being dead, before making a poor attempt to hide the bodies behind a few shopping carts. The double homicide seems to have gone by unnoticed, and the Brabant killers resume the business of breaking into the supermarket. A few minutes later, they slip through a square hole in the door at 1.23 a.m. They don't know it at the time, but this triggers a silent alarm to the security company who monitors the store remotely. Unaware that they set the alarm off after cutting through the doors, the three men seem to take their time, loading up their loot. Security called the local gendarmerie station three minutes later, advising of a robbery in progress. And five minutes later, at 1.30 a.m., officers arrive on the gas station forecourt. At this point, the Brabant killers have almost finished loading up their haul. In total, they've taken 4,100 pounds of coffee, 250 liters of peanut oil, 250 liters of corn oil, and small quantities of chocolate and gin. The Brabant killers spot the police and open fire, forcing them to scramble for cover. A volley of shotgun blasts slam into the side of the police van, forcing an officer called LaCroix to take cover behind the driver's side door. His partner, Officer Maru, returns fire with his submachine gun, yelling for LaCroix to call for backup. Seconds later, Maru gasps in pain as he takes a bullet to his ankle, collapsing. His own weapon falls to the floor as he clutches at his wound. Before LaCroix can react, Maru is killed when one of the Brabant killers fires a shotgun straight into the throat of the downed officer. LaCroix retaliates bravely, but he's pinned down, alone, and outgunned. He squeezes off several more shots of his own, taking a bullet to his left hand. He opts for a risky move, slumping between the dashboard and passenger seat, pretending to be dead. The Brabant killers realize their shots are going unanswered and stop firing. The three men approach the police van carefully. Though he's badly hurt, LaCroix is still conscious and hears one of the killers say of his dead partner, Oh, the bastard, he had an Uzi. One of the Brabant killers shoots Maru in the head for good measure. Although as LaCroix has his eyes closed, it's not clear who pulls the trigger. 
One of them reaches into the van, grabs an unresisting LaCroix by the belt, and flips him over. They remove his holster and take the pistol he still holds in his hand. It's time for the Brabant killers to make their escape now, but not before one final act of needless violence. One of the men aims at LaCroix's neck, firing one last round to finish him off. Incredibly, the bullet strikes the officer's shoulder strap, resulting in a far less serious wound, one LaCroix will recover from. The Brabant killers take the weapons, radios, and van keys from the police before leaving in two cars, the stolen Saab they had arrived in and the Mercedes belonging to the couple they murdered a short while ago. LaCroix waits for both vehicles to leave before he dares try and sit up. He's hurt, but manages to call in a general alert that's passed on to all stations in Brabant. Police set up roadblocks all across the region. One patrol spots the two getaway cars driving along a highway and gives chase. Instead of running away, the Brabant killers do the unexpected yet again, and they stop a quarter mile ahead, one car parked on either side of the road, and wait for police to catch up. The approaching police car barely has time to react. When they get within 20 yards, shotgun pellets shatter their windshield, injuring the shoulder of the officer driving. Officers are forced to drive past the Brabant killers until they're out of range, then turn to engage them. It's too late though. All three Brabant killers have climbed into the Saab and are powering away back in the direction they came from. The officers call it in, but the Saab disappears along local back roads. The husband and wife, plus the murdered officer, bring the Brabant killer's body count to eight. The Saab is found the next morning, damaged from the gunfight, but there's a glimmer of hope. Police are able to lift prints from inside. Frustratingly, these go missing, adding weight to the theory that the gang is in some way connected to law enforcement. Robberies at a restaurant, a supermarket, and a jewelry shop follow in quick succession in the run-up to winter. Four more fatalities and a number of others wounded. The pace seems to be escalating. Surely it's only a matter of time, police think, before they make a mistake. The police make several arrests in connection to the case, but they all turn out to be dead ends. David DeCasa, the owner of the gun store robbed back in 1982, and a former policeman himself, is one of them. One theory is that it could be an inside job, orchestrated by DeCasa, to make the prototype silencer he had been working on disappear. He had been left bearing the brunt of production costs when the deal seemingly stalled, and investigators speculate this was his way of keeping hold of the silencers without angering his buyers. Police also arrest a criminal organization known as the Borains. Their leader is a former police officer called Michel Cocou. The Borains become linked by virtue of the gun that's turned into police. It's a Ruger, one owned by Cocu, and now linked to one of the supermarket shootings by ballistics. Cocu and his associates are subject to day after day of intense interrogation. At one point, Cocu even makes an admission of sorts, but it doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Not only are many of the details wrong, the model of the car he says he drove, the type of gun he says he fired, but there are allegations it's obtained under extreme duress. Koku has learning difficulties and failed every year of high school at least once. 
He and his gang make several dozen confessions and retractions, some of which the local prosecutor even questions the validity of. Ultimately, though, there's not a shred of tangible evidence to show for it. In the end, the Bahrain gang members have the best alibi of all, though. They're still in custody when a robbery is carried out by the Brabant killers. This, coupled with forensic evidence proving their innocence, sees them ultimately set free. Police feel helpless as they wait for the Brabant killer's next attack. But then the gang does something nobody expects. They simply stop. After the jewelry store robbery on December 1st, 1983, they seemingly disappear into thin air. Authorities are left scratching their heads as to why. One surviving witness from the last robbery says they saw one of the robbers lying stretched out on the floor. Had he been wounded or killed? No evidence was recovered from the scene to confirm this, however. During this lull in the Brabant killer's activity, a familiar name resurfaces, Madani Bahush, a gendarme that has long been suspected to be a member of the gang. Bahush is no longer a gendarme, having quit at the beginning of 1983, just as the Brabant killers were hitting their stride. He has since set up a private investigation firm with his former partner on the force, a man named Robert Bejer. There have also been rumors for some time now that Bahush has gone rogue, moonlighting as a gangster himself and leading his own crew. If the stories are true, he dabbles in low-level robberies and arms dealing. In May 1985, a collection of guns are stolen from the home of Juan Mendez, an engineer for a large European weapons manufacturer and friend of Bahush. The former gendarme had knowledge of the collection, where it was stashed, and when Mendez was likely to be at work. Mendez stated publicly that he thought Bahush was behind the robbery and an active member of the Brabant killers. But Bahush doesn't match any of the early descriptions of the gang when they have been seen unmasked, and nothing comes up of the Mendez tip. There are also a number of circumstantial links between Bahush's gang and the Brabant killers. Both groups use similar methods to anonymize guns by removing serial numbers. They are also both known to manufacture false license plates for vehicles used in their crime. The Saab used by the Brabant killers had false plates produced with the same technical glitch in the mold as those known to be made by the Bahush gang and artificially aged using the same process. Taken by themselves, these similarities are a compelling link, but aren't enough to charge anyone without more corroboration. One forged number plate found on a stolen car used by the Brabant killers was set to be scrutinized more closely, but like the fingerprints, it was mysteriously lost or misplaced before it could be examined properly. Meanwhile, investigators are chasing their tails, wondering if the Brabant killers will ever pop their heads back up to give them a shot at catching them. They don't know it at the time, but the theft of a VW Golf on September 22, 1985, nearly two years after the gang's last strike, signals their return. Their actions over the next six weeks will make what has come before look like child's play. On September 27, 1985, the stolen VW pulls up outside a Del Hayes supermarket, the longtime favorite target of the Brabant killers. This time on their way in, they grab a child playing nearby to use as leverage. By the time they leave $20,000 richer, 
The child is unharmed, but three more people have lost their lives. Then they do something they've never done before. They move immediately onto the next job. No pause, no hesitation. 30 minutes and 20 kilometers away, they hit yet another Delhaize supermarket. Like the previous town, there are children playing near where they pull up. Just like in the last robbery, the Brabant killers try and seize a child for leverage, but the kids run away in fear. Most escape, but one child is shot without any warning or apparent reason. Once the Brabant killers are inside, four more shoppers and staff are gunned down as they tear through the supermarket before making their escape, even shooting at oncoming cars as they hightail it out of town. With the murder of a child, you might think the Brabant killers have hit an all-time low. You'd be wrong. It's November 9th, 1985, and Belgium is still reeling from the re-emergence of the Brabant killers. There's a sense of fear that has settled over towns and cities like a heavy blanket. Police are trying everything they can think of to make the public feel safe while they continue to search in vain for possible suspects. Armed undercover officers are regularly deployed to grocery stores, weapons hidden in shopping bags. Snipers hide on nearby rooftops of likely targets during the Brabant killer's preferred hours of operation. There is a visible stepping up of marked police cars making patrols. People fear for their lives each time they go to the grocery store. Six weeks have passed since the horrific second coming of the gang, but what happens today will pale in comparison to their previous actions going down as one of the most violent attacks in Belgian history. The Brabant killers climb out of a VW Golf at a Delhaize in the town of Alst. It's the same location that Christian Bonkowski had been stationed at after his ejection from the Diane Brigade. They've been observing the place for some time. When they see a police patrol car finally leave the parking lot, they make their move heading into the store dressed in all black. They open fire immediately, heading inside as panicking shoppers dive for cover in the parking lot. The first victim is shot point blank in the head, crumpling to the floor. The Brabant killers walk towards the entrance, passing a car where a family of four sit, paralyzed with fear. The man known as the killer points his gun at the father's head, while his nine-year-old daughter begs for his life. The killer's response is to shoot every last one of them. Parents first, followed by the girl and her brother. Only the boy will survive. They coast into the store behind a volley of fire and fall into their old routine. One man on crowd control, the other two marching the manager to the safe in his office. Some witnesses will later report that they saw the giant walking with a limp as if he'd sustained an injury. Less than three minutes after arriving, they race back out to their car only to see that police have been alerted and are pulling into the parking lot. The killer and the old man jump in and start the car. The giant stands defiantly beside the VW, walking alongside it for cover as the old man pulls away from the curb. The giant keeps firing at police for another few paces before sliding into the open door. Then, the Brabant killers disappear into the night.
When the police finish their search of the supermarket, they count eight dead. This brings the total body count in the Brabant killer's three-year reign of terror to 28, with another 40 wounded. Later that evening, a witness spots a VW Golf in some woods an hour south of Brussels. They claim to see a tall man lying on the ground, possibly injured or dead. Had the Brabant killers stopped here because their leader had been hit by police in their last firefight? Two days later, another witness sees two men throwing large bags off a pier into a canal that passes through the town of Ronquière. A weapons catalog and several gun magazines suspected to belong to the Brabant killers are found by the water's edge. The area is searched, but nothing is found. While the Brabant killer's official spree is over, there's one more killing that some believed should be included in their total. Arms dealer Juan Mendez, friend of Madani Bahush, is gunned down in his car on his way to work. The man convicted of his killing is none other than Bahush himself, someone who many believe is linked to the Brabant killers, even if there's no concrete proof. Bahush is sent to prison, but as far as the Brabant killer's case is concerned, a year passes with no new leads, and police are getting desperate. A new team of investigators is appointed and starts to review what their predecessors have done. One thing they go back to is the search of the canal in Ronquière, and for reasons not made public, decide that the search efforts had been poor and order it done again. This time, they find guns and other items used by the Brabant killers. Amongst the items found are parts of weapons suspected to be from the Decesa gun store robbery, albeit with serial numbers removed, as well as the fall shotgun from the gun store in Dinant back in 1982. In addition to the weapons, a key is recovered. It comes with an interesting, alleged backstory that is leaked to the press. An unnamed source says it opens an office in a gendarme station in the nearby town of Vaux-Sessor. Although this doesn't solidify into anything meaningful that they share publicly. Far from being a break in the case, the discovery of the bags only deepens suspicion amongst some that someone on the force has been manipulating things behind the scenes, deliberately hamstringing the efforts to find the men responsible. The previous team of investigators pushes back on allegations that they had been sloppy, saying the new team must have been tipped off by someone linked to the Brabant killers. A team of independent forensic experts carries out tests on the hall. They declare it couldn't have been in the water for longer than two months based on the condition of the contents. A long way short of the year that's passed since men were seen throwing bags into the canal following one of the Brabant killer's robberies. The new investigators claim the tests are flawed and the infighting only serves to slow down any chance of real progress. This leads to yet more speculation that there are forces at work within the police to obscure and frustrate anyone and anything that resembles a route to the truth. Many believe the key to that truth is uncovering a motive. During their reign of terror, the Brabant killers claimed dozens of lives all in exchange for comparatively small amounts of cash and innocuous items like booze, coffee, and peanut oil. This strange behavior leads many to believe that they hadn't been in it for the money, that their true goal had been to cause panic and disruption within the Belgian public. After all, 
a highly skilled group of them could have made millions robbing banks. Is it possible that the Brabant killers weren't just three common criminals? That they were part of something bigger? By the late 1980s, investigators give serious consideration into the theory that terrorism, not robbery, could have been their elusive motive. Before the Brabant killers emerged, the ruling right-wing government were tipped to lose power during the upcoming 1985 election. Crime had long been one of their key campaign issues, arguing that more resources needed to go to policing and national security. The emergence of the Brabant killers confirmed these claims, and ultimately, voters were so frightened that they ended up turning out in droves for the right-wing government. They won the election by a landslide. Over $200 million worth of new investment was delivered when they retained power, including 10,000 new weapons and 1,000 more vehicles for the gendarmerie. Remember that by the 1980s, the Belgian gendarmerie was widely regarded as understaffed and underfunded. Is it possible that they made a deal with the right-wing government to sow seeds of terror in exchange for more government funding? Or could the conspiracy go even further up the ladder? After all, the gendarmerie weren't the only group that benefited from the right-wing government retaining power. A BBC documentary in 1992 dives deep into this theory, pointing the finger at an organization known for using disruptive tactics. The group in question is a far-right organization called Westland New Post, or WNP, led by a man called Paul Latinus and his right-hand man, Michel Libert. The group's goals were simple, to sow racial and societal discord. Its members infiltrated local and national government with aims of inspiring right-wing reform. It's suggested by the BBC that the actions of the now-defunct WNP were sanctioned by the Belgian government, after leading members were arrested in possession of highly classified NATO documents that should be available only to the inner circles of Belgian power. The WNP had been involved in everything from robberies, civil unrest, all the way up to murder. An unnamed former member of the WNP even recalled being ordered to covertly surveil and prepare reports of security arrangements at Belgian supermarkets. WNP ties with authorities ran deep, with Latinus and one of his trusted lieutenants, Michel Libert, both being paid informants for Belgian intelligence a fact that stoked the rumors of collusion between WNP and the government all the more. When Latinus died by suicide in 1984, a death that many saw as suspicious, rival factions formed within the WNP. This combined with a number of convictions of prominent members at the end of 1983, fueled speculation that the Brabant killer's period of inactivity that happened at the same time was no coincidence. Despite these theories, progress in the case is almost non-existent. Investigators continue to entertain the notion that some of their own people might be involved. They dig back through the case files, re-examining suspects, looking for a piece of the puzzle that might have been overlooked. One name that gets past them anonymously is that of Christian Bunkowski, still serving as a gendarme. A friend of his contacts investigators, saying they believe Bunkowski may be one of the men they're looking for. The friend had clearly known him for some time and shares that when Bunkowski was kicked out of the Diane Brigade, he had ranted about wanting to bring down the whole damn system, even saying he wanted to stage a coup d'etat. 
based on these statements, the man had long suspected Bunkowski of playing a role in the Brabant killers. Suspicions which seemed confirmed when he saw the latest sketches police released based on early witness accounts. For him, the likeness is undeniable. Just like the sketch of the giant, Bunkowski is tall, lean, with dark hair and a mustache. Investigators speak to Bonkowski, taking fingerprints and DNA. They test these against a cigarette butt found at a crime scene in a partial DNA sample from one of the bulletproof vests they pulled out of the canal in 1986. With yet another lead dead in the water, investigators are faced with a ticking clock, thanks to the statute of limitations in Belgian law. They only have 15 years from the crimes to identify and prosecute. Their allotted time will run out in November 2000, on the anniversary of the Brabant killer's last attack. Desperate times call for desperate measures, and legislation is passed to extend the statute of limitations to 25 years. Despite the extra time this buys them, the years continue to stretch out without any real hint of progress. The next significant development doesn't come until 2014, when former WNP member Eric Lamers claims the WNP was behind the Brabant killings in an appearance on Belgian TV, and that Michel Liebert is the man known as the giant. Liebert was arrested as a suspect soon after the program was broadcast, but released without charges after 48 hours for lack of evidence. The case once again goes cold, but in 2017, the investigation into the Brabant killers gets its biggest break yet. Someone has given a deathbed confession. A man comes forward to police in 2017, saying that he is the brother of Christian Bonkowski and that the former police officer had confessed on his deathbed two years earlier that he was the Brabant killer known as the giant. He says he has been in denial since Bonkowski's death and has only just been able to share what he knows. Bonkowski had been a gendarme for over 30 years, only retiring in 2010, five years before his death. Investigators tracked down his ex-wife, Denise Van Dyke. She had met Bonkowski in 1991, six years after the Brabant killer's last job. When asked what he had been like, she describes him as an angry man. He had some good times, she says, but he was above all an alcoholic full of frustrations. She shares that at the wedding ceremony, a fight broke out and fellow officers had to take him to the station to calm him down. The marriage was short-lived. Denise left her husband after only three months. Investigators ask her if she believes his confession, whether he had let anything slip about the crimes during their brief marriage. I was married to a policeman, she says. It was impossible for me to think that he could do such a thing. She clarifies this, emphasizing it is not that she thinks he is innocent, but that she simply didn't consider it at the time with him being a serving police officer. But suddenly, investigators present her with one thing that makes her absolutely certain that Bonkowski was the giant. The police sketch. Those square glasses, that long nose, the small chin and sideburns, she says, nodding as she speaks. I have no doubt that's Chris. I am 100% certain. 
The giant had also been spotted wearing a very unusual hat. When they asked Denise about this, she admits she remembers talking to him about his choice of distinctive headgear. She tells investigators, Whenever he wore that awful German hunting hat, I made fun of him, she says, confirming for a second time that, in her opinion, the man in their sketch is none other than her ex-husband. And it's not just testimony from his ex-wife that supports Bonkowski's confession. It's his connections to another previous suspect, Madani Bahush. Bonkowski's brother says his brother knew Bahush. He claims to have seen Bonkowski meet with Bahush and his partner Robert Beiger on a number of occasions 35 years ago. Another coincidence emerges. It wasn't widely known at the time, but back in 1987, a lockup belonging to Bahush had been raided. Weapons found inside were traced back to a robbery from a Diane Brigade compound back in 1981. The same elite anti-terrorism unit that Bonkowski belonged to. The unit wasn't well known outside of law enforcement, so the fact that a former operative from the Diane Brigade had confessed to being the giant makes this decades-old discovery take on a potentially explosive new meaning. Could Bonkowski have led Bahoosh to the weapons? Author Charles Maurice, in his 2018 book, Insane Killer, Inc., goes on to assert from his interviews and research that the Bahoosh gang were at this time preparing an audacious extortion scheme. Their plan, he says, was to threaten to detonate bombs in large supermarkets, just like the Del Hayes chain targeted by the Brabant killers, unless the board of directors paid a large cash ransom. Maurice believes that Bahush and his gang were the men behind the masks of the Brabant killers, and that their robberies were a means to finance and steal equipment from the bigger extortion payday. A plan that ultimately would come to a halt when Bahush was put away for killing Juan Mendez in 1996. It turns out Bahush himself had already passed away in 2005, in the most bizarre of circumstances. He had been let out on parole in September 2000. His marriage had broken down while he was inside, and he was estranged from his children, so moved to France, setting up home in a remote house surrounded by woods. On the 22nd of November, 2005, a neighbor went to check on him and found his body by the foot of a tree on his property. Details are scarce, but authorities say it looked like he was attempting to cut the tree with a chainsaw when he slipped and practically decapitated himself. French police were unaware of his criminal past and allowed his body to be cremated. This means that investigators running the Brabant case cannot obtain any DNA samples for testing. A search of his house uncovers a shotgun of the same make and model as those used by the Brabant killers, but the weapon can't be linked to their crimes and it's passed off as a coincidence. Re-energized by the connection between Bonkowski and Bahush, coming on the back of the deathbed confession, Investigators take a closer look at Bonkowski's life and service history. Coincidences emerge immediately. Bonkowski had taken days off work that corresponded with the Brabant killer's robberies. More specifically, in November of 1985, just before the gang's last heist, Bonkowski had taken two months off sick for a broken ankle. At first glance, this should rule him out of being part of that final brutal attack but many witnesses recall seeing the giant walking with a noticeable limp. Based on this fresh wave of evidence, 
Bunkowski's DNA and fingerprints are checked again against samples that they have on record that investigators believe belong to gang members. This time, using more modern techniques than back in 1998. Hopes are dashed when there's still no match, but there are those who don't see this as conclusive proof that Bunkowski was not a member of the Brabant killers. After all, there were three of them, and it could just be that Bonkowski was not involved in the disposal of the weapons, and the prints they have belong to the killer or the old man. Either way, Bonkowski is officially ruled out on what some see as a flimsy basis. One anonymous judicial source does share a tantalizing line with the press, though. We are almost 99% sure it was not him, they say. But of course, you can't question a dead man. It's not the first time hopes have been raised only to be dashed, though, and the clock is ticking. The statute of limitations has been extended so that it now expires in 2025. It's a fast-approaching deadline, and with no new avenues of inquiry since Christian Bonkowski, it looks like they'll be faced with the same choice in the next few years, extend or admit defeat. In June 2020, Authorities released a picture of a man they wanted to find in connection with the Brabant killers, saying it had been given to the original investigators in 1986 anonymously. The picture shows a man with dark hair and a matching mustache standing in a forest, holding a semi-automatic shotgun. They decline to give any more context as to who he is or why he's important, but dangle a reward of over a quarter of a million dollars for information leading to his capture. It's not even certain that the perpetrators are still alive, or whether the giant, the killer, and the old man have died in the 37 years since their last robbery. One thing's for sure. They may have disappeared, but the marks their crimes left on the nation will never be erased. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet Christopher Smith, a violent murderer who spent his life hiding from the police and dodging justice. He was a known criminal who spent his days shoplifting and committing petty crimes. But one night, his violence exploded when he brutally assaulted and killed a young mother. Smith was never caught by police, as many presumed his work was that of the Yorkshire Ripper. With police and public attention so focused on catching the notorious serial killer, Smith was able to slip under the radar. But hours before his death, he left a guilty deathbed confession admitting to the unforgivable crime he committed that night. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Matias Torresole and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. <laughs>